Hey, Superstructure listeners, it's Will. I wanted to introduce this episode with an announcement for anyone who didn't know, which is that we're launching a Patreon membership drive for the Money on the Left and Superstructure Project. We have some big plans, including the launch of a website, an academic journal, a popular writing platform, as well as plans to compensate our behind-the-scenes collaborators who help us with graphic design, audio engineering, and more. We have plans for various premium content for members, starting off with a lecture series from Scott Ferguson's course on the neoliberal blockbuster, which we kicked off last week with a discussion between Scott Ferguson and Max Seho on Avengers Infinity War. In the meantime, thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So hello, everybody. Uh, this is uh, Will, another episode of Superstructure. A uh, little bit of housekeeping first. Max is not here as a birthday present to himself. <laughs> he, was <able> to, <laughs> he was able to leave the Superstructure and, and leave us fallen and broken communication with each other. Um, Slumming it in the base. <laughs> so that's, that, that voice is uh, Scott Ferguson. Um, Who? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right. Is it? Is it Scott? Okay. Yeah, no, it's whatever you want it to be. Duns Duns Scotus. It's Duns Scotus. Yes, we have Scott here, who is a professor of film and new media studies at University of South Florida, um, where I also am a grad student. Uh, and we have Andres Bernal, who's the director of outreach at the Modern Money Network, finishing uh, his doctorate at the New School in public policy, uh, and has um, acted as a policy advisor to AOC and uh, Jessica Cisneros and a couple of other people. Uh, and of course, we have uh, Natty Smith, our uh, third co-host. Hey, what up? I'm trying to be like less of a grad student here, you know. Yeah, well, we're we're Jesus a little Christ. bit. Yeah, these credentials is just like, oh my god, like you're too far from the base. You're just floating and floating and floating away, and I'm like, you know, boy, voila, doesn't matter. I can fly with you. We we have to switch our AV inputs from geist to base. <laughs> yeah, I, I I hope nobody's recording on geist, or we'll never get this back. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, every time you, every time somebody says a credential, I just see numbers and they're trying to kill me. Um, so. Ow, stop. <laughs> Counting. Yeah, so um, this episode, uh, I wanted to try to like pack a lot into this episode um, and just kind of see how we do, starting with uh, some reflections on... The last episode that we did, where we had Chapo Trap House's Matt Chrisman on, uh, which was, um, to use one of Chapo's favorite words, it was a spectacle. Uh, and <laughs> This is the society of spectacles. <laughs> it was disgusting, honestly. Um, you love it. Stop. <laughs> I, I love it, but I fear it, but I desire it. It's like money. You capitalist. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so I, I wanted to first just, like, ask all of you just your reflections on it, because I, I think Natty and I are... You know, we were obviously in the conversation, we're a little bit too close to it, and then maybe we can move on to just kind of general reflections on it. 
Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Um, no, it was it was fun to listen to. I think there were some moments that I was getting like riled up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but you know, it was cool that um, we got to see how much like basic assumptions and starting points about how we think about politics, um, you know, make a difference and lead to different types of analyses and different ways that we understand problems and solutions themselves. So that like in and of itself was really important because we're kind of all living in this post Bernie world and, you know, things are are going to shit, but at the same time, you know, we're really trying to articulate um, these, these bold visions that I think have tremendous potential and whatnot. So these are, I think, the kinds of debates and that we should be having and, and the tensions that we should be exploring. The, the, the things that stood out to me the most, I think, were like, on one hand, it was clear that, um, you know, power in, in the perspective of, of Matt and kind of the Chapo analysis is just like this thing that only exists in this like one point, right? And to them, it's like the working class, right? This is kind of like the standard, Napoleon. the standard Marxist idea, <laughs> right? And, and and you all have been you all have been articulating and discussing like that there are limits to this, right? To view kind of power as something that just like gravity, you know, drops down to this one point, and everything else is just uh, distraction or, or useless or some kind of spectacle, right? To bring that that term up again. Um, and, and it was just interesting to see, like, given, like, the history of at least just the country, right, and, and everything that people have had to deal with and go through and all these huge fights and victories and losses and whatever, uh, it really seemed like Bernie was, like, this figure. And I fucking love Bernie. I voted for him twice, you know, met the man, huge Bernie supporter, right? But, like, the way the way that Bernie is kind of spoken about, it was like a messiah – it was like Bernie was like it, and now we're like fucked. Yeah, he he had a historical role. Andres, right? that's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I interrupted. Um, yeah, but I mean, it just it just seemed like so so much was put on like Bernie the figure and, and, and the man. It's like nobody. Like, it seemed like they don't know what to do now, so they've fallen into uh, despair. Which is ironic because Matt Chrisman is like all about like saying he's like anti-personality. It's about the base and policy, not personalities. But he, of course, is like reifying personalities more than anyone. I mean, explicitly, he's doing a Hegelian dialectic between Obama and Trump. (laughs) 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 Anyway, sorry. (laughs) It's so true. And and, um, I, I feel so. I felt so upset and sad, obviously, when when Bernie kind of lost and the circumstances around the way the Democrat, Democratic Party screwed him over and whatnot. But like, that was never the be all end all, right? And there were there were so many things that we understood that like you know even if Bernie wins, we have this like long struggle to go. Even if Bernie wins, there are things that he needs to improve on or his movement needs to get better at. Like we all kind of knew that. So I think I think that was kind of interesting and it tied into me to the way that the conversation around media uh, was had between you all. Uh, I think like a lot of the framing that um, Chrisman was bringing to the conversation was like, we, we have a choice between MSNBC as representation of media and 
I, I didn't even really hear much else. Like that's media, right. and that's all. It, that's all it can be. It's the cacophonous grifter media sphere where even even he himself is a mere entertainer, and you know it all just gets sort of boiled down to the same nonsense. Um, but but hey, listen to my show. <laughs> yeah, right. And that pain that's there. Yeah. So like, Natty called him out on that, right? And she was like, "Well, you know, what do you do?" And it so that that's the thing, right? It's like our choices, like MSNBC or the or the exclusively the Chapo perspective uh, of kind of being like cynical to all of this and reducing all of power to one site, one one space, and there's nothing else we can do about it. And there was this conversation about the Democratic Party as it's currently set up, um, being like this useless institution, which in to many degrees, like we can all agree how much the Democratic Party is fucking trash. I love it. <laughs> I wear, I have like a Democrat track jacket. It's nice and blue, it's shiny. My track it. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, given that there's like this impulse to retreat into cynicism, and I just felt like it, it, it's really ignoring just the history of parties in the United States and all the different realignments and the way parties have been, um, you know, pushed in different directions throughout history, the way that the radical right has taken over parties to achieve their goals in many different ways, both of them, right? Both parties in different ways. And the way the left has had to use parties, not like fully put all of their hopes in a party, but rather use parties to win certain kinds of important legislative battles and to influence politics at large with them. So that those were kind of my thoughts. And, and it all comes down to just very different visions about, you know, what is politics and what can politics do and the role of, you know, ideas and media and meaning and, and, uh, and how we construct the, the rules of political horizons and of inclusion and exclusion um, versus just like everything has to happen from one place and that's it. And if you can't get that, nothing matters. Well, and there's places outside the U.S. too, which he says like, well, I don't know about them, although he does invoke the European uh, early 20th century labor trade union parties is his like ultimate goal. But like, you know, your family's from Colombia and like he he, he kind of others like the rest of the move, like all those countries and continent have so many... Uh, ideas and competing factions and different sites of struggle and it's like erasing univocally like well and you'll see that counter hegemony thing too from here where everyone's just like Washington does everything you know but there's this simplistic thinking but you know like Colombia's like I've heard has like the highest book reading rate in the world you know like that's an incredibly contended uh, like idea space for normal people just to like participate in society and be political, you know, and that's part of being involved is making that a habit just because that's what you do. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think it does make sense. And I think Colombia and other countries in Latin America offer an interesting example in like how there is no just flat working class that has no, no, you know, different aspects to it and contours and whatnot and intentions yeah. in it. Right. Like Argentina, Chile, Colombia, like these are sites where it's become quite visible how like different uh, groups that are becoming empowered are pushing traditional left movements to have to like think in different ways and not just kind of 
fall back on what's been the the, the orthodoxy. Well, that's mostly the Pope. The Pope has been leading most of those efforts. <laughs> yeah, the, we just need the Pope to call for a general strike. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's worth, like, dwelling for a second on what this idea that, like, the working class acting for itself as, like, the historical agent that can only act in this one way at the point of production, like, what that implies about how we see law and governance in the first place. Because I I think that the critique that we've sort of been sketching in various ways on this podcast and episodes leading up to this pretty much since, since the start, like, our our issue with not just Marxism, but just liberal political economy in, in general, um, is that it, it kind of naturalizes markets and the physics of markets as being external constraints on public governance. Whereas we want to say that, you know, public governance, you know, mediates not passively, but actively mediates and shapes what these rules are. And, you know, in, in a certain way, it's like, you know, you're taking the idea of markets and capital at at their word. And of course, you know, Marx is scathing about markets, but the like, the criticisms of markets for him is that, you know, it, it sets capitalism on this like death drive towards economic crisis and, you know, all of these things. Um, and so you have this idea of a working class that is predicated on a notion of private property that can't be questioned except like imminently from inside of it like the working like we just need to collect all the private property in order to abolish it right and all and all the corporations <laughs> right yeah yeah we just need to to round them up um because that that's the embryo of socialism <laughs> and so you have this class identity that is premised on this capital labor relation but the capital labor relation assumes a very particular private property regime that we do not want to naturalize and do not want to uh, do not want to reify. Don't use that word, William. <laughs> um, <laughs> this private property regime is is legally contestable and is is most importantly predicated on the public not spending money and kind of kicking that responsibility down to like sociopathic capitalists who get bank loans to do it that way um so you 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 have this you have this schema where there's just capital and labor and so of course labor has to act as a unified actor in that schema and assert its will it's right. self-conscious collective will yeah it has to recuperate a collective will in order to uh, asserted in in what's really like a physics image right and and this language comes out where they talk about you know leverage what kind of leverage does the working class have um what kind of you know power does the working class have and power here is understood as the force of your will <laughs> right yeah. um it's it's how much does your will weigh right now um <laughs> yeah, and and it's I've also been losing weight. if you're <laughs> if, if you're unemployed or underemployed or doing uh, feminized or, or racialized care labor that isn't recognized directly by the private property regime, then you need not apply your will. Sorry, you're just not there. You're not, you're not in it. You're not, you're not part of the struggle 
for the corporate entity. Right. You're reproducing the not feminized and not racialized <laughs> laborer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? That's yeah. that's your role. Yeah. Um well, and that's yeah. why Chrisman has anxiety about like graduate strikes cuz I don't know what what he's is he saying he wants more strikes in in uh, retail is he saying like he wants more like where in nurses like where is the working class located a lot of places that I don't think are included in his fantasy shop floor Yeah, I mean well this is you know the slippage is so kind of weird because on the one hand the only thing that the working class can do is withhold its labor. But on the other hand, we're in this like weird, like death spiral of declaring certain people's work illegitimate and not able to exert leverage over capital, you know, which is what this skepticism is toward grad student strikes. You know, it's like the thinking behind it is like, oh, what, you're gonna withhold writing a stupid paper that no one's gonna read? Like, how is that gonna (laughs) threat? How is that gonna challenge capital? (laughs) You should do that, though. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, there's there's absolutely a, a connection there to like the history of, of United States anti-intellectualism and just kind of contempt for anything that has to do with like art or thought or poetry or or or, or superstructure. Like thinking about don't make me read. Yeah, don't make I mean, me read anything. Right. <laughs> I will not read. It's a reading strike. <laughs> over and over, there's this common argument that the the quote unquote working class just cannot understand deep things and therefore shouldn't be bothered with with like thinking about things because that's just like a bourgeois thing so we completely concede all of that uh and give it away which which is like just a real tragedy because uh, the rest of the world doesn't do that like we do but we, we take that for granted and i almost feel like beyond uh naturalizing markets there is this kind of other level to that where we take for granted this materiality uh, that exists in the form of a quote unquote economy. And, and, you know, yeah, markets are, are, are part of that and it's just there and everything else exists within that prison of materiality. Uh, and so as long as we kind of figure out ways to access what materiality is and, 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 and help this working class subject uh, kind of develop its consciousness of it, then that's politics. But, you know, that's, that's not how things work. Consciousness is an idea. I mean, all these ideas of coming to consciousness are ideas. Materialism is an idea, right? And you have Matt Chrisman going off about like how in another episode I was listening to of like uh, about QAnon, about how you need to have just the sparks of real conversation, of real people, like just the ether of, of media will never be what affects you. It's like talking to people in person is also a medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I was drawn to MMT in large part because like right before I discovered the work, I had been already uh, like researching things that problematize this notion that there's like this economic category that's material and independent of everything else. Like none of that shit makes sense whatsoever outside all of these other conditioning forces that are cultural and social and legal and political and anthropological and historical that are like coexist with what we're calling and, and like generate what we're calling material. And that's all taken for granted by like, I think this this position that someone like Matt, Matt Chrisman occupies. I just, what struck me throughout the interview is how zero sum, all or nothing, weirdly like late 19th century Darwinist it hit Matt <laughs> Chrisman's position was where it was like, well, you know, 
you fight, and if you have the bigger, you know, saber tooth, you know, you win, and then everybody else loses, and then their whole lives were meaningless, essentially. And, and I'm just like, you know, it, in Napoleon preparing, lost. Terrible. In preparing for today, I was just like, I was compelled to just like make a list of like all the people, all the campaigns, all the orgs, all the shit that has been going on on the left, in progressive circles, just in this country, that I am, you know, I don't agree with all of them, but I'm like, I'm so proud of, and I feel like I'm I'm a part of, you know, maybe not always directly, but like shape my world and shape a larger horizon, right? You've got left and socialist legislators, AOC, Omar, Presley, Tlaib, Bush, Bowen, Saval, You've got all kinds of progressives that ran and lost, but like they had these incredible progressive campaigns, right? Uh, People like Cisneros in Texas, Jennifer Perlman running against uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, Eva Putsova uh, in, in Arizona. You've got the Justice Democrats. You've got brand new Congress. You've got the progressive talent pipeline. You've got Sunrise Movement. Yeah, Sunrise Movement, Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives. Like, are you kidding me? Like... Yes, yes, we haven't gotten everything we wanted. Yes, this is a fucking shitstorm. But give me a break. Like, don't erase all this. Yeah, well, un- until it wins, it's spectacle. Yeah, until it wins, it's like, it's it's like social Darwinism, you've lost, sorry. You know, that's just history. I mean, I very vividly remember being in high school and like, you know, kind of getting into electoral politics or learning about electoral politics um, in a more in-depth way. And then it was like, John Kerry was our option. Totally. And, and, and like, it was like, what? And, and the big, the big, the big progressive option was like Howard Dean. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, Don't we, we, we fucking come a long way come from on. that. Oh shit. We have come a Nader long way Nader was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Also Ross Perot, Ross Perot was, had some good okay. ideas. Um, so. <laughs> Some bad ideas. <laughs> Sorry, this is my transition to Jimmy oh Dore, like my my imaginary of his of his, his <laughs> imaginary. Like he probably is like Alex Jones has some good ideas, especially when Nader was on the scene. <laughs> yeah, so like I don't want to like you know litigate whether or not it's a good strategy. Like it that that Jimmy Dore is proposing to like have this floor vote on Medicare for all that can be used two years from now and attack ads uh, like it doesn't really make sense to me <laughs> if I'm being honest because I feel like we already like it's been made abundantly clear to us that Democrats the majority of them do not really support Medicare for all like you know unless you've been living under a rock for the last eight years like that's that's literally been proven over and over and over again to people and it's it it, clearly it hasn't activated the material interest receptor in workers brains (laughs) that like you know that it was supposed to so like bringing it back to chrisman for a second on the one hand chrisman downplays his own media as like a form of self self self-care that's kind of um, meaningless. And and of course, we don't believe that media is meaningless. But I do think that there's something to the idea that there's something really like self-soothing about extremely bleak material assessments of what our leverage is and what our power is. 
where as as Andres was saying, right, that like besides this one point that workers could exercise power in, the rest is just meaningless bullshit and spectacle. And you know, but but we're weirdly comforted by that because it's like, well, at least we learned, you know, at least we know now that that we only have one shot and we're not even remotely close to it. And it's just it's so weird. And I, I was just I was so struck by this kind of argument uh, towards like, you know, AOC needs to do this. The only leverage that the left has right now is to use its last dying breath to remind workers that Democrats don't support Medicare for all. And just to clarify something, so like Jimmy Dore is not a doesn't identify as a Marxist. Oh no 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 yeah right. yeah yeah no. right right. And so I I just I just want to say like these are broader assumptions, and yes, they are concentrated in Marxism and have actually developed in Marxism, but it's not like they're exclusive to Marxism. No, a- absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. But I, I will say, though, that the idea of, of a working class acting for itself gets transposed onto the left and gets transposed onto the left thinking of itself as this autonomous historical agent whose job is to exert leverage on Pelosi in like the most blustering non-discursive at, at the point of of congressional production you have to be careful that Hillary doesn't assassinate anybody <laughs> <laughs> well i mean to sp- to speak about kind of the general state of the left right now you know and I- I- not just to pick on marxists mm-hmm. but there is kind of this 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 we've cultivated this kind of contrarianism where whoever can come out and be like you know, anybody that doesn't listen exactly to what I think we should do to kind of blow everything up is a fucking corporate sellout. And that means that I'm going to single out like the progressives who have done the most to change politics and who, who've done like 10 years worth of political uh, transformation in two years. And I'm going to single them out to do this exact one thing or else you're completely useless as as a as like a progressive representative or whatever. And I think like this kind of contrarianism is is uh, is unfortunately growing, and it's like become a thing. Uh, and and like it just creates the space for a lot of opportunism to to come in and like mislead people in through like incoherence, which is what we're we're kind of dealing with. I, you know, part of the MMT analysis that I like is the notion that we think about things in kind of like terms of nested scales and, and levels, right? And, and we're, we're, we think about the importance of how, you know, law and governance and the rules and decisions about, you know, who, um, inclusion and, and how people participate within systems all condition and shape, like all these material conditions that we, we talk so much about. I mean, I, and I think that's the case, you know, in a community, in a city, but that's also the case within the institutions we've decided to make laws, which right now is like Congress and the House and stuff. And what's been missing from the conversation is the fact that one of the reasons the Democratic Party sucks so much is because for decades, they've arranged the rules inside of the House and inside of Congress to favor neoliberals and to favor the right. And, you know, these progressives, in my opinion, are trying to address those rules so that we can like, you know, continue fighting for these things that we want because that stuff matters. That's like shaping like how we can pass these laws. And it's also obstructing the the bigger things that we want. But 
you know, it's much easier to just be like, no, 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 no. What you need to do is just go head first, like a head first, like a ram into Nancy Pelosi. And every that would be ch- cool, though. That would be. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be cool. <laughs> Yeah, well, I just I'm picturing like uh, like an oil painting of a leviathan holding its hand over Nancy Pelosi's hand, making her sign the Medicare for all. Like, Bill. And then Scott's Richard Richard Serra, the the trying to catch lead in the hand, yeah, right? Yeah, the, yeah. I can't Pro- catch the Achaity. I just need yeah. to grab Nancy's hair and then push her down, and then then we will have a real working class movement. Yeah, and it's like right right now we're we're fighting for PSP extensions. We're fighting for relief. We're fighting for checks. We're fighting for state and and city relief, which everybody's ignoring right now. I, I saw something online where people were cheering that maybe we won some um, s- some relief checks, but like at the expense of city and state relief, which is like disastrous too. So we have all of these things that we're like juggling, and I think like for people to like you know. Uh, condense all politics to like, if you don't go head on against Nancy Pelosi, you're useless, is ridiculous. One thing is saying, uh, you know, like Scott, you and I were talking about this earlier. One thing is saying like, these, these this is what we, this is what we want. We're going to organize for it. We're going to call on Congress to do this thing, to push for this, for this strategy, right? We're going to kind of build the kind of, you know, organizational power to make this known. That's not the same as like if you don't do this thing right now, you are a complete sellout and you're just like a Shell. neoliberal and you're useless, right? Blowing that up. So yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Uh, well said. I'll add one more thing, and that's a, like this this approach doesn't help unions and organized labor either, and that's like because. Because, like, you know, someone might argue, oh, these MMT people, like, don't give a shit about, like, labor and organizing. And that's, like, not true, right? Like, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the job guarantee. We're talking about uh, a, a lot, like, coordinating and, and building the kind of relationships with labor leaders. And we have done that, right? But reducing all politics to, like, you all have to do this now and everything else doesn't matter is, like, completely counterproductive for uh, you know, working people that that's that exists in like a heterogeneous space. There's different kinds of working people, uh, and working people are connected to those that are not right. working and those that you know, right? Like we have to see this all as a whole um, to properly address this problem. I think we need like a, a much more bigger picture uh, approach. And I'm not opposed to movements having a adversarial relationship with progressives, and you know, I think there's different registers in which we can have people who are like doing the progressive thing. We can have people who from the left totally ignore them or left movements that are pushing them. The idea is not like, Oh, you know, I think what Jimmy Dore conditions is he's like, if you, if you uh, don't condemn AOC, then you are like her and she isn't condemning Pelosi. Like it's this very controlling univocal thing. That's like, I'm happy to disagree with AOC or push AOC or have a radical stance towards progressivism while being of it and not of it, you know, but this idea that just this contrariness is bad is not true. He's just sounds like he, I don't know. He just sounds like a nineties crackpot to me. I don't know, but (laughs) you know, it's not (laughs) real. It's not real analysis. We don't want to reify the real, but it's just like this fantasy of what, and he, you know, he has a very sexist tone. Like, we don't support Rachel Maddow or Hillary Clinton, but, like, 
he's obsessed with with women. I mean, we. I mean, he goes against women in ways where it's just like, why are you obsessed with AOC? The sense of she betrayed me. She sold me out. You know, it's like if you disagree with her about Congress, like you can make an analysis of that, but she's not like your your stilted lover. You know, <laughs> like it's just like a little too much. You know. <laughs> There's there's people who are like you weren't elected to like you know be a shill for Pelosi that have like no clue about what District 14 in New York is like or what that community is like or like have shown zero interest in like the you know the the needs of that district and how it operates or whatever. But but like I think like this speaks to this other point that we that has been made in in this podcast before, which is that like this kind of contrarianism and bleakness and like uh, zero sum scarcity. Uh, politics and and framing uh opens up the danger of what's sometimes been called eco-fascism um and, and and it's a relationship to this kind of impulse that sometimes is explicit uh and other times is is kind of covert and i think like this door controversy speaks to this very much so which is like hey let's like low-key join these alt-right people because like they're actually willing to go head on against the people we hate you know they, they, they like conspiracy theories they'll do crazy shit like that's that's where we get power right if we just if we just form alliances with the alt-right and like these you don't more... want to stop war you don't want to stop war. <laughs> right right because yeah. because like alt-right people have this like long long history of being against war right <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very against against globalist wars yes um <laughs> Yeah, they, they they even they're so against it they want to have a war to overthrow the globalist regime. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's very dialectical. Um, but <laughs> I mean, so I, another thing that um, that I just uh, want to say um, before returning to um, to eco fascism, which I think that we're we're in eco fascist gear now in the podcast in terms of you know who like tying things together to like where these logics really do lead. But I want to, um, I want to just also say that like this idea that, you know, we can only exert power at the point of production or we can only exert power at the point of Nancy Pelosi's pen, right? Like this is taking the, it's, it's taking and her ice cream. <laughs> Fucking ice cream, that bitch. Um, totally unhinged misogyny. Um, <laughs> That's called a class war, <laughs> right? It 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 takes it takes these systems at their word when they say that the only quote unquote leverage points are here, and like imagine if the march on Washington didn't happen because, you know, they realized there wasn't enough power at the point of production or, like, in Congress. It's like, no, that's, like, totally missing the point that, like, power, quote-unquote, and we don't want to kind of reify it as... There there you go again. There you go again, using that word. (laughs) I know. I love love physics. (laughs) F equals M-A squared. Or no, F equals M-A. Or no, M-A squared. I did, I, I got all A's. That's the math equation. <laughs> Physics. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> mobilizations that, that they condemn as spectacles, right? And like as riots, right? And like all of these things as unproductive. Individual atoms colliding and never the twain <laughs> shall meet. There's just like, we're all in these atoms and we have our little electrons that are forever repelled. Yeah, well, they, and- they have their form of atomic 
organization that's valid, which is at the point of production or at the point of Nancy Pelosi's pen. And everything else is this, like, spectacle that gets, like, all these, like, creepy, like, moralizing, you know, or feminizing and racializing tones, you know? It's just hysterics. It's just his- it's just spectacle. Just It totally misses the fact that, like, a lot of these, you know, quote-unquote spectacles are actually, like, generative of, of different political conditions. As we were saying, but before this, and I think Natty and I were talking about this is, like, the problem is not political theater. That's that's part of politics. The problem is shitty political theater. And, <laughs> yep. you know, I think... God-awful yeah, political and, theater. And, okay, you know, professor. I, no. <laughs> I think, um, you know, Matt, Matt Christman is a, you know, a bad theater critic. I'm on record. Well, I want to hear more about your, your thoughts on his, because you're the, you know, I like your movie analysis, and I want to hear, like, what what you have to say about his uh, theater criticism. Like, what's your criticism of his criticism? Because we're, we're doing astrophysics where it becomes astrology, so we're on a lot of meta levels. <laughs> yeah, we are. At, at, at the <laughs> highest level of physics, it's completely self-referential and nothing means anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's spectacle in itself and for itself. <laughs> um Another thing that we did want to talk about, because we noticed that Chapo reviewed the Avatar movie, James Cameron's Avatar, and they loved it. And I want to get, um, I want to get Scott's uh, Scott to weigh in first <laughs> on, <laughs> um, just you know. So for for listeners who don't know, Scott is uh, particularly a scholar of the new Hollywood blockbuster as a style of filmmaking, and you know the kind of um, aesthetics of it, and you know the ways that it's charged with meaning under neoliberalism, and you can take it away. <laughs> it's really cool thinking. Thank. Um, so I guess you know. I mean, I get their gambit. I, I get their gambit, which is like, it's weird for Chapo to love the the hippie blue, blue people movie. And we're going to lean into that. And that's kind of ironic. And we, we ironized our way into this love. And they, they perform that. And like, I can respect that to a certain extent. Yeah. But as somebody who's thought a lot about the whole history of the blockbuster, I find their... Uh, <laughs> their desire to make Avatar into some great exception to the blockbuster form, whether it's, you know, in comparison to Marvel or just in comparison to the to the whole history sending back to Jaws and Star Wars, I find it absolutely baffling because everything that Avatar does is very much entrenched in and an extension of what the what the neoliberal blockbuster has been doing from the beginning in, in a, a variety of ways. And I'll say, I mean, to get back to the, the Natty's question about political theater and, uh, you know, my, my quip that Matt's a bad <laughs> political theater critic, um, <laughs> it, it's because, you know, it really comes out, I think, in, the, in their Avatar episode, or the second one, that they How really many just there? don't think... <laughs> I, I think they did too. I think they like built up to it in one and then yeah. they like slam dunked it in, in the next one. <laughs> this is the revolution. Yeah, no, oh, it's totally the revolution. It's the, it's the anti-imperial working class revolution led by 
uh, and uh, about, by the genius James Cameron, uh, who's commanding <laughs> an army um, with his Napoleon-like uh, historical subjectivity and multi-talented expertise. It's insane to me, um, the, the way they love this. But it's ironic. The, the th- no, I'm just kidding. It's very ironic. <laughs> yeah. well, but it, in, in all seriousness, where I break with them is that they just reduce the whole damn thing to content and they just take it at its word, right? I mean, the there's no sense that this is a social form that has a history and that that social form actually has meaning uh, uh, in its own right beyond just, you know, like a, a, a summary you could read on Wikipedia. Basically, they're like, well, the, the, the film... Uh, gives us a bad guy in the form of like a militarized capitalist empire and that's really badass well i mean wake up uh, this is what this is what blockbusters do and you know to be fair they compare it to the avengers and the avengers is actually i think maybe not exceptional but it is it it's one of the the franchises that will kind of um uh, be affirmative or give us, you know, ambivalent, affirmative um, representations of American empire and all that. But like for the most part, I mean, if you go back to the beginning to, to, to Star Wars, right, like the evil empire was supposed to be the American empire and the, the you know, the rebel fighters were were a thinly veiled allegory for the Viet Cong in the middle of the 1970s. And that doesn't necessarily make Star Wars some radical working class, you know, a revolutionary pop culture object. It just means that, you know, the American empire and, and American culture and American pop aesthetics is complicatedly working through its own guilt and its own kind of bad faith. And, you know, like to me, I don't see avatars doing anything else. And meanwhile, as a student of the form of the blockbuster, I'd say, my big argument about the blockbuster is that the blockbuster starting in the late 70s becomes increasingly obsessed with physics and a, a, an aesthetics of immersion, a physical fire immersion. And this is so... Sparks. Yeah, fire sparks, grinding, gravity, um, anything that makes you feel like you're materially being pressed up against something or banging your head against something or your butt is being massaged by massive digital base effects. Like the whole aesthetic form of the blockbuster, and it hasn't been the same the whole time, but I think that there's been a, a consistency within heterogeneous context essentially like gives us a feeling of the way reality works of the way cause and effect works the way that like what's meaningful versus what's not meaningful that's all predicated on like this intimate proximate physics that's not deterministic it's contingent it all kinds of wild shit can happen but at the end of the day any kind of remote relationship any kind of you know back to mmt land right like a tax relation, an obligation, right? That I might have, you know, with the municipality in my, where I live and maybe the federal government and maybe with you all who are dispersed, right? All of these remote obligations are in the form of the blockbuster meant to uh, appear 
superfluous. They're meant to feel like, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, my argument you mostly need is like, the blockbuster, what? You mostly need Batman. That's the thing. Yeah, you need Batman. If you have you, Batman, you... why do these other things exist? No. Yeah, you need the bat signal. <laughs> Can you get an example, like in a movie, how uh, remote relations would get would is suppressed or would actually exist? So, you know, there's one of the one of the, I think the paradoxes of the the or, or the contradictions or the hypocrisies of the blockbuster is that actually, like speculative technology is uh, is like an obsession of the blockbuster. Like we think like cool stuff like cool interfaces that like float in the middle of the air like in avatar right and like weird like glass screens and stuff like that the blockbuster is one of the key places where we as a a culture basically like you know explore and you could say you know uh, wax poetically about like technology and abstract technological mediation but that only lasts like for the first act, right? I mean, not always, right? But like that, that, la- that lasts for like the first act or the, into the second act. And then that, that stuff has to be smashed. It has to be ground into the ground. It has to be broken into little bits. You have to feel the force of gravity, which, you know, starting in the, the 90s increasingly was produced by algorithms, more abstractions. Um, and essentially my argument is that, is that, the Hollywood blockbuster, while it uses all kinds of abstract technology, it can't actually reckon with the fact that that <laughs> that motion pictures are abstractions, and so it does everything in its power to try to ground itself from the from the micro level of you know immediate uh, impacts to the macro level, which you know mostly the macro level it likes to depict um, through forces of gravity. Now, Sounds this, like Marx. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> real abstraction. My abstraction's real. It's real. Yeah, yeah. It's real. Are we real. Yeah, you can. If you smash it hard <laughs> enough, you'll see that it's actually just a rock. Yeah. <laughs> Destroy abstraction inside me. I'm real. Yeah. Well, it it also is like you know all of the communication and discourse and all of that stuff. Like your ideas don't matter. Because Jaws the shark is going to kill you, right? And, like, your planning doesn't matter. And your relations at a distance don't matter because you are compelled by physics to do, like, in an almost amoral way, which is yeah, why Blockbuster is, right? It's it's allegorizing what it's, what the what the middle-class Blockbuster audience during the Reagan years and beyond, like, wants to hear, right? Which is that they have to do the difficult thing and, you know, cut welfare and, you know, do all of those things. And that it's just the physics of the market, right? It's like, our you know, society, we had stagflation in the 1970s. Society became too excessive. And, you know, what goes up must come down. And morals don't even play into it because, you know, morals are, you know fluffy things that professors get to theorize about right they're you know they're not actually you know they're not going to help you in that gravitational situation and and that um and that so like i i also want examples too like andres like i want like an 80s example i want a 90s example like just like big movies like 
Like, what's the 70s action gravity? Because people are going to say, what do they mean physics? What do they mean gravity? Like, what's the 80s? What's the 90s? I mean, Jaws. Like Jaws is the 80s. Um, no, Jaws is 75. We can cut this, but Jaws okay, is 75. Grade's already in for that class. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so Jaws is mid-70s, right? Um, one of the iconic scenes in Jaws where they're all in uh, this, like, you know, community center building where they're all kind of wringing their hands and there's this cacophony of people who are like, what are we going to do about the shark? And I have this problem and I have that problem. And it's just this like alienating noise, right? Um, and then and then suddenly what cuts through that noise is this gnarly old fisherman running his fingers along a chalkboard who says, here's what we're going to do. And... And the plan is he's going to go out to sea, right? And and what happens? There's contingencies of, you know, like two people like fall into the shark's mouth and like die, you know, and like, but but that's what needed to be done. And that's what the discourse, right? All of the people wringing their hands are talking about the ethics of this plan. Volker, Paul Volker. Right, like the, the allegory. Late Jimmy Carter, yeah. Yeah, the, the allegory is that, you know, like the, those people need to shut the fuck up and like get with the program. Right. Um, and there's there's no uh calling the Coast Guard, there's no calling the state, there's no there's no intervention at the federal level. That's not even on the table. And actually, right, the, the specific historical context is, you know, the the New York City faux debt crisis, right? Where Ford Ford to City dropped dead, right? And it's so funny that the Sheriff Brody actually flees from New York City, 1970s New York City, to like calm his white nerves with his white family on this <laughs> <Yeah>. island, uh, <laughs> right? And so like, it's it's so painfully mid-70s. It's so painfully, um, n- you know, contested New York uh, money politics in the 70s. And then it's just like, well, we got a shark and like, there's not even a there's not even a plea to the higher level. It's just no, we have to take this on immediately, right? And the the sphere of action gets contracted more and more and more and um to the very end when it's essentially uh Brody is just st- <laughs> he's just perched on a sail on a sinking ship. It, you know that like almost the entirety of the ship is under and basically it's like He's like a Jaws fin sticking out of the water, just like Jaws, and they're like mano a mano, like this contracted. Talk about like point of production uh, <laughs> fantasies. It, it's it's like the stories we're telling ourselves as a culture have to revert back to like this logic of physics uh, because they don't know how to engage in remote relations, and 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 that's kind of am I getting that correct? It is, and I just I want to like differentiate between like. There's always interesting things to do with the narratives. And, you know, Chapo can read Avatar the narrative however they want to, but if you don't pay attention to the the aesthetic construction of the narrative, the way that we as spectators are meant to be immersed in a physical, a highly hyper-physical situation, right. that's the thing that to me is the most problematic about the blockbuster. And so all the other stuff... and. And there's it's no a craving for like the fully... sensory floor, right? Because you've talked about in yeah. in your work about like how the idea of organizing fiscal agency for people where they have what they need is to cultivate 
a sensory floor for people that involves the stories we tell, right? That's part of the sensory floor and all the ways we design our society and our structures and all of that is part of that. But this lack of, you know, you know, the eighties were the nineties, all this high, high neoliberalism. And it's the sense of need for thisness and for physical comfort is like speaking to a deeper psychological craving. If I'm reading you correctly in a sense of even object permanence, Absolutely. And, and like to, to, to kind of add on to that, like, you know, for people that hear you say everybody wants to talk about content, like the content of Star Wars, the content of Avatar and these stories versus form that kind of gets pushed aside or is seen as just a passive, you know, reflection. You know, you're making the argument like you can't detach the two, like like form is always there giving content. It's it's. It's generativity, it's manifestation. Yeah, you you can't drink a glass of water without a glass, and that glass has to be shaped, and it has to be manufactured, right? Like, there's no, there's no getting around form when you're trying to, you know, talk about content, a word that I basically hate, and I think, I think content doesn't actually exist. Postmodern scourge! (laughs) I'm thinking about Star Wars, I'm thinking about Star Wars, and like, how pissed off people are with like, these new uh, sequels or whatever, and you know, like they just keep coming back to blowing up the same Death Star, uh, and and like that's kind of speaking to what you're 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 arguing right now that um, there's all these issues around you know the social provisioning of this galaxy far far away or whatever, uh, and the kind of um, generational issues between father and son and so whatever all that kind of stuff right. But like the answer, in the end, the answer is always we got to blow up the Death Star blow up the Death Star and then rebuild the same Death Star and then blow up the Death Star again, right? Like, like, is that kind of also this kind of gravitational logic? The exhaustion of the aesthetic, right? I mean, it's the exhaustion of the aesthetic project. Yeah, I mean, and my that's arg- just being, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, the, the blockbuster is a kind of culmination, not the only one, but a, a kind of culmination of the exhaustion of the aesthetic project as a kind of you know, anti-money, anti-market, which of course in this model, they're conflated, um, uh, dialectic that, um, that, you know, the aesthetic project was sort of how bourgeois European modernity was going to save itself, right? The, the money was this kind of nasty alienating thing, but like a kind of necessary evil, sorry, you know, it's actually really productive. So we got to do it, but you know, it makes us into, you know, kind of, immoral bastards and it it you know it doesn't do much for our uh our sense of the world and our our sense of community so we'll we'll philosophize and then start creating artifacts in this other realm that we'll call the aesthetic realm which really never was thought about or existed prior to the enlightenment and that other realm was going to be all the things that that money screwed up it was going to be you know, sensuously rich rather than sensuously draining. It was going the to eternal be... Jew. The <laughs> it it was ar- armor against <laughs> armor against the sucking uh the sucking money force. Absolutely, <laughs> and and in many ways, I think that you know, I mean, the standard story that gets told about this is that you know the. The rise of 19th century socialisms has is trying to kind of radicalize the aesthetic project and make it into not just something that bourgeois people do on the side, but something that, uh, you know, is generalized for all people and all working people. Uh, and then 
um, the the capitalist class, um, no, they seized hold of the project with marketing and commercialization and mass culture, and then um, you know there was all kinds of you know conflicts and Maoist madmen. Yeah, questions about right. Yeah, 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 right. And then it all went to shit. Maoist madmen, and then postmodernism, and then the society of the spectacle, and simulacra and simulation, and oh, we're despairing. <laughs> and oh my God, this whole we have no. There's nothing left. We have no more hype. Hyper reality. Yeah, hyper reality. We have nothing it's just, left. I it's, get hyper. <laughs> it's all it's all dirty money screwing us over and there's nothing left, right? And it, in many ways, like I, I feel like the the hysterical, what I call hyper Newtonian physics of the blockbuster is kind of playing out in an unconscious way, uh our like hysteria about the end of the aesthetic while like slamming our head over and over and over against it and its promise and its and its failure and that there's something there's something you know tragic about it but also strangely comforting because it's yeah. what we know it's what we know but ultimately i'd say it prevents us at a kind of unconscious sensory level from actually reckoning with how abstract forms of mediation above all money actually organize our world and organize our world in ways that are irreducible to you know the force uh and you know objects moving left and right and up and down and us being immersed in explosions right like most of our social lives happen in coordinated remote ways yeah and i i i want to also like compare this argument that you're making about the kind of self-soothing slash kind of self-harming that's the the oldest combination <laughs> i mean yeah um <laughs> that that sort of i think like the way that the blockbusters explosions and like austere life or death situations where you fully expect that not all of us are going to make it um, is like weirdly comforting to us because at least we know it is like I, I want to compare that to some of the reaction from parts of the socialist left to this podcast uh, because I, I think that there's this sense where, where like you know people ask like what is MMT's theory of power we love it doesn't have one we Nothing. want it <laughs> love to have it <laughs> like what is love what to is... use my lasers <laughs> well i mean that's it's it's easy it's alchemy that's our theory of power right <laughs> well right i mean yeah. our theory of power is that you know it's it's contested at all of these different analogical nodes that are mediated by you know language and culture and you know all, all of that stuff but like like, even just setting that aside, like, I just think that it's so interesting that, like, you know, the theory of power that I'm used to is that we're not going to get Medicare for all unless there's a general strike. A hunger it. strike, excuse me. Right, uh, a general hunger strike where many of us are going to have to die, right? And, like, and, and this is this is allegorized at the, you know, at the level of the narrative in Avatar, right? Like, he has to become destitute and become indigenous right like this this is the like the weird kind of paternalistic like undertones of this narrative that's like valorizing suffering i have a friend like this <laughs> I, th I think we all have a friend like this <laughs> oh i know but he goes like he's so explicit like he's like what natalie 
why does all the best art come from suffering? And then he'll talk about, like, the cave painters. And he's like, it comes from the essence of your heart. I have to think about the original things. And I'm just like, you need to chill. (laughs) (laughs) I have a similar friend who was like, you know, toilets don't make any sense. It would be much more efficient to, like... (laughs) To use a system like they used before where you like dug dug holes in, in the back of your, you know, house or whatever and like Like when Max Blumenthal went to Venezuela and he said, I think things I mean, I think things are pretty good in Venezuela. I mean they have trains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because all of Latin America's the jungle. <laughs> I think that a lot of the reaction to this podcast has been they're trying to take away my sensory floor, right? The like they're trying to take away my bleak class struggle narrative. That, you know, yes, it makes me depressed, but it's also like I need it because it it gives me a, a reason for for living and for organizing. And, you know, e- even though on its face, this is like the most pessimistic story ever. It's comforting because at least we know it's not bullshit, right? And we can have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And how does that connect to Avatar? I want to hear the Avatar rundown. Well, I mean, the the Avatar rundown is that, like, he he has to, like, at, at the level of narrative, and, and I, I have to admit, I did not see um, Avatar recently, so I'm not going to be able to talk about form. I'm only going to do content here. Um, <laughs> but, but, like, at, you know, at the level of narrative, like, he has to give away his body and his and his life to, you know, fully become one of the people on this planet uh, in order to, right? Like he has to literally destroy himself and become fully destitute. I mean, this is the Franciscan sacrifice, right? That we that we allude to a lot too, um, which is probably too much of a can of worms to open today. But yeah, like it's the whole narrative turns on, on self-sacrifice and listening to Chapo talking about it, that's what they like about it. That he's like, like this is a real white savior. <laughs> yeah, he because he's been pared down to the to the lowest form of himself. You know, like he's 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 proven himself to be pure self subsistence, right? And and <laughs> only from that the the basest bottom of the base can you rebuild. Yeah, I mean it, it's racialized as indigenous, right? Like they're they're supposed to be like an indigenous pre-capitalist society that's that's resisting capitalism by being this white projection of indigeneity as just pure self-subsistence and bare life and, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. I, I just like this seems like it's a lot of guilt processing too where like the people kind of glorifying and talking about how great this these movies are which you know i'll admit like when i first view some of these stories especially when i was younger like my first impulse is like yeah badass like they're they're taking on the the you know, american imperialism or, or whatnot and that's legit no one's saying that's not legit right yeah. and i think like enjoying these movies is fine too but there's a deeper point here which is like a lot of this is processing guilt and to you know like a lot of people who are who are experiencing impoverishment or 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 these kinds of conditions aren't seeing the world like this like you know what i mean like there's there's a gap here between those that are like fetishizing uh this kind of this kind of approach this kind of austerity this kind of sacrifice and a lot of times the 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 recipients of the fetishization who are like seeking provisioning 
seeking care, seeking support, seeking solidarity. And oftentimes, like, not willing to go head on into, like, some big explosive fucking fight that's going to, like, destroy their lives or their loved ones, right? Like, it's usually not coming from from uh, a lot of people that need care and, and, and social provisioning, like, in urgency. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think there's the other side of this, which is an Edenic fantasy, a fantasy of total, absolute redemption, which just plays into the same kind of physics fantasy. It's the fantasy that um, you will be immediately touching and hugging all the members of your working class, you know, solidarity community all the time. And which is very powerful. So that's a very powerful of fantasy. It is. Like, right. of yeah, because it, it's the desire for care that that's yeah. being kind of sublimated, right? Yeah, legit desire, but but again, formulated, right? Aestheticized in a particular way. And I mean, it's crazy to me this like uh, you know, the splendor of the the great, you know, world tree, they call it a world trade tree because they want to make these 9/11 comparisons. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> there there are these scenes where like, you know, this is a a monarchical community, right? It's run by a king and a queen, and like it's it's very very hierarchical, and um, and then there's like all the just like you know uh, nameless, you know, just villagers or whatever, and and there's these scenes where they all gather around the tree, and it's this like writhing quasi fascist like like hippie Burning Man, everybody like, at Burning Man, yeah, Burning Man, like love, like 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 massage love fest that you know that to me has like like proto-fascist you know implications and i i feel like it's you know mmt and our uh, our project often gets accused of being like you know pie in the sky this could never happen but in fact I, I think very often it's our critics who have the kind of edenic fantasy that they feel fallen from and they want so badly and to me this is the only way that chapo can like be excited and fully seduced by these like fascistic writhing blue people all touching one another is that like secretly they have blue face yeah and 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 i mean it's this whole it's this whole kind of regressive this whole regressive fantasy it's like jake sully becomes a baby and and (laughs) and and then he gets taken up i mean there's this crazy obscene shot near the end where like jake's jake is hurt and then he's he's in his back in his regular body and then uh the um the female lead i forget her name um the character like holds him in this like pieta uh you know like madonna holding the baby christ tableau and it's just like are you kidding me <laughs> well what, what's what's really interesting too is um you know in new york city i spent a lot of time around like burning man people um who are like really really into it and it's not surprising to me after kind of being in, in, in the NFT world for a while that like the most hardcore cryptocurrency and Bitcoin people also have this like Edenic fantasy to go to Burning Man when there, where there is no money and where people are going to like we're going to uh, expand uh, and kind of generalize decentralized, you know, scarcity based money cryptocurrency. And that's going to bring us all into a state of Burning Man 
where you know everything is just this Edenic ritual. Right. Yeah, and it's an orgy, and you you plug in with your your sex hair, <laughs> and and everyone's plugged in except for all the people who have just died in the American Empire, which you're you're happy about. I would like to hear. I would like to hear just kind of a little bit more about you know what are so then what are we kind of saying you know just like a little bit more meat on our theory of change. It, it, we've already obviously alluded to it in terms of like these. These remote these remote relationships and whatnot, but uh, and, and when when you brought up like in Jaws how nobody called in the federal government or whatever or like uh, in in Star Wars nobody talks about who's financing the Death Star except for economists and they <laughs> um, calculated that it's impossible it could never be affordable <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so so what are we actually calling for right like to me it's it's there's absolutely like a time and place for strikes and for hunger oh, strikes and all and all these yeah. things but. But, but, you know, but it's not like people who go through that are like, you know, that uh, romanticizing that experience. Like people fucking suffer going through a hunger strike. And, and, and even, you know, when, when strikes themselves are needed, like, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But like, there's a lot of sacrifice that has to happen through that. And, you know, it seems like fetishizing that is the big problem or, uh, or condensing all politics that matters into that. Uh, movement is the problem as opposed to as opposed to building organizations and building capacity and and at multiple levels and building alliances and making sure they're intersectional and inclusive and i mean as i said to somebody on twitter the other day that was you know coming after us once again well you know what's mmt's theory mmt doesn't have a theory of power and you know i said like we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Like there's plenty of models and people are doing all kinds of work. I mean, if anything, we're trying to say like more of that, please. And let's like acknowledge that this is going on and, you know, maybe some more uh, applause and praise (laughs) of the people who are doing that work of building capacity on the left rather than just whining that, that, you know, you're, moonshot candidate didn't make it this time well guess what you know there's a whole huge variegated intersectional left out there that's putting in the work and that has not gone away and that is excited to do more which doesn't mean we're gonna win and and while like in terms of power you know while confrontation is obviously important people ignore or at least kind of these reductive takes ignore the importance of maintenance and care of your organization and like the, the interpersonal bonds that you have to cultivate and and like the effects that that has on you know how people organize and the logic and the ideas and the culture that is cultivated through organization like some of the biggest wins in new york city for housing justice you know superstructure exactly boom yeah well and and also situating state power um within the interdependence that makes state power possible and that makes inside outside strategies as they're often called this kind of binary makes them cohere with each other and is the basis for this actual interface uh between them right because like you know the example that i always you know want to go back to is the uni proposal you know which which is a proposal for parts of the economy the you know universities which are these huge provisioning authorities to provision themselves with their own credit 
quote unquote from outside of you know Congress, right? It's you know they're they're provisioning themselves, but they're calling upon their interdependence, you know, with with like the rest of the economy, right? Like, you know, everything in the economy is indirectly involved in producing everything else that, you know, transcends any national boundaries, right? And like that, you know, and and that's not to say that the whole world is just the economy either, right? Like, like those relations are nested within, you know, a broader interdependence that's just ontological. And so what that means is like, you know what these these kind of perspectival images of the state over here that you know we have to go to you know we will say like yes like good like do that but like don't snipe at people who are you know somewhere else who are trying to negotiate the terms of law and legibility and change the conceptual conditions of what's actually possible you know, both inside and outside in order to reshape these structures, because it's not like out, you know, however much Westphalian, like modern sovereignty wants to declare that outside of the nation state is an anarchic void (laughs) outside of the nation state is relations of economic interdependence that are structures. This is not something that that has to just start and stop within these institutions taking them at their word for where the pressure points are because those institutions are conditioned by broader structures of interdependence that are negotiable at all levels inside and out and that the gaze of sovereignty is not able to fully exhaust as as an object just to say that you know working to change the governance rules of a legislative body is completely incompatible with organizing for Medicare for all in your district, in your state, in your city, you know, through other organizations who have been fucking putting in the work to to organize for Medicare for all that a lot of these people are ignoring completely. Like to say that those two things are incompatible can only exist in like the zero sum logic world where, you know, you have to demand like this specific action on this specific issue right now that is like going to blow up the Death Star or, you know, nothing is possible. And if we have to sacrifice Alderaan, like so fucking be it, like whatever, we don't care. You know, like I I think like that is is what we're contesting against to say, you know, yeah, it is it is organizing on different levels and how these things can cohere. I think I think that was beautifully put.
Yeah, it's a sliding so 